Charles Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, November 1, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, taking up the last years of the Kingdom of Judah. Dr. Andrews' book, Archaeology in the Old Testament, from page 277. Now, we did make a beginning on that last time, and uh, we got down to about um, some of the practices of this very wicked kingdom of the missionary. What was your question now you wanted to raise? Which is the number? Well, the connection is not between demonism and occultism, but between this man Manasseh and both of these practices. That was said in the service? Yeah. Now, demonism and occultism are not the same thing, but uh, oh, I would say they're somewhat akin. Uh, demonism is um, either the real or the professed um, piracy of a human personality by an evil spirit. And this is something like we find in the New Testament, people with, with demons, unseen spirits. And uh, the best book on this, incidentally, that, that I have ever seen or heard of is by the same man, Dr. Unger, and the book is called Biblical Demonology. And, uh, well, he is a, <laughs> a believer in the Bible, and uh, unlike many people, he does not try to explain demonic phenomena away by psychology. He says simply these people are got a complex, so they're, they're psychotic or something like that. You see, the symptoms can be the same, and the cause could be different. You could be psychotic because you got knocked on the head and had a concussion or something, or it could be caused by an evil spirit, and yet the outworking of this in your nervous system and consciousness might be the same, but the cause could be different. And so I think it's, uh, let's say, um, every demon-possessed person is psychotic, but not every person with a psychosis is demon-possessed because of it might be physiological or it might be psychological. Now, it has been pointed out by devout Bible scholars of this field that um, Satan has three levels of attacking people. The first is ordinary temptation that anybody can be subject to, anybody that is a Christian and anybody that isn't a Christian can be tempted by Satan to do something wrong or to offend um, against God in some way. And this is not the same thing as demonism, although Satan is a demon on it. But ordinary temptation. The second is obsession, where the evil spirit has um, latched on to a person and really made a problem of himself and has uh, attacked this person with repeated and very severe temptations and uh, perhaps doubts of God and the truth of Christianity and so on until this person is really suffering from. But still the demon is outside of the core of personality. Now, I don't suppose anybody but myself here is uh, old enough to remember when cars had running boards. But uh, uh, they're starting to come back now. Oh, all right. <laughs> History repeats itself. Cars used to have running boards, see, and you step outside of the door of the car. Sometimes uh, people trying to um, oh, attack a car driver would jump on the running board. And uh, maybe a car would stop for a red light or something. Somebody got on the running board and, and perhaps might have done something that the driver or telling to stop or something. 
And you could say that dream, uh, demon obsession is like this. The demon is uh, hitching a ride on the running board, but he hasn't got in there in the driver's seat yet. And the third level would be possession. It is temptation, obsession, and possession. And when you get to this point, the evil spirit has gotten behind the driver's seat and seized the controls of the car. And furthermore, picked up the owner of the car and tossed him into the back seat. Still going along for the ride, but the, the demon is operating the controls. Now, this is the, explains the type of phenomena that you have in the New Testament, where uh, obviously the speech comes from the lips and mouth and tongues of a human, but the source of the words is not a human source. Jesus asked the poor, a demented man who is out there in the, in the cemetery cutting himself with knives and so forth and generally acting in that uh, raw way, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. You see, and this is, this is an, an evil spirit that has pirated a human personality and is manipulating it and using it so that the words spoken and the acts done are no longer those of the human that he was to start with, although still the same body. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis's book, Pearl Andrew, or Voyage to Venus? Well, the unman in that book, this would be a um, typical, of course, it's fiction, but this would be a typical case of demon possession. This, uh, the man who fought, the young man, uh, that had been human, but finally was uh, completely a tool of an evil spirit. Uh, finally was disposed of. But, uh, have you read? Well, sure. Carol uh, Andra is um, not any better religion than the two tech others. They're both good, but it's, uh, it's uh, fiction and fascinating reading. And uh, incidentally, uh, I don't know anything that will make the story of the probation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden live for you like even that book Carol Andra, which is uh, a, uh, a satellite on that that will show you the, the reality and the intensity of the struggle against evil that was involved in that. It was not just such a simple and lighthearted thing as you might think by reading a very brief account of it in the Bible. And uh, this, uh, this unman, who was originally a physics professor from England, on the planet Venus, he does everything he can to get the eve of Venus to disbelieve and commit sin. And has to sell her this idea that God didn't mean what he said. And he comes within a hair's breadth of doing it, but it doesn't play. So the human race on Venus gets off to a very start on this earth. But uh, it's, uh, well, I stayed up all night reading, so that's what I think of for a Now then, you see, temptation, obsession, and possession. And possession would be the ultimate, and apparently this can never happen to a person. Uh, so this can't happen to a Christian, for example. And this can't happen to any person but someone who has himself sort of opened the door for this by um, some very evil sinning against conscience and life. And uh, Jesus said to one or two of these people, Go thy way, sin no more, lest the worst thing happen to you. And uh, apparently, uh, Satan or any evil spirit of his domain could not gain access to the interior of the human personality unless somebody opened the door. This unman in Paralandra, uh, he said, I opened myself to that force completely. I am your God and I am also your devil. And at this point he falls on the floor uh, 
foaming at the mouth and writhing around in a terrible state, and Anson uh, got a bottle of brandy that was in his backpack, and the fellow bit it through, but right through the glass, and put out a little blood, but no glass. And uh, from then on, he was demonized. So he opened the door to this by saying, I am your God, and I am your devil. Kind of thing a person ought to say, you know. <laughs> so I, I commend this book to you. Now, Mr. Mayor, that answers your question. All right, the occultism would, would be a broader term. This would include horoscopes, fortune telling, um, all attempts by um, other means than the word of God to predict the future. Uh, not not ordinary parapsychology, telepathy, I think, and uh, some of these things are neutral. But uh, this is not a good devil necessarily. But um, attempts to um, accomplish something by the use of forbidden forces, attempts spiritualism would be included under this broad category, and also this would probably include the belief in the reincarnation. Now, there's a book, and one in our library that's been liberated as usual, but the Man in the Process of Time by J. Stafford Wright, the uh, evangelical minister pastor in the Church of England. And this deals with paranormal phenomena such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and some of these things from the distinctly Christian point of view. And um, he rejects two things completely. You can't be a Christian and believe in spiritualism, and you can't be a Christian and believe in reincarnation. These are both contrary to the word of God and forbidden. But other things, telepathy, clairvoyance, the precognition, he finds these <clears throat> to be abnormal powers of the mind of some people, and not necessarily evil, also not necessarily good. They're comparable to ordinary psychology, but beyond the borderline of what ordinary psychology deals with. Did you ever go to call somebody on the phone and start to dial, and the phone rang and it was a party you were going to dial? Well, that happens to you once or twice, and you think, that's a coincidence. And that happens to you five times, you begin to think there's a meeting of minds somewhere to, uh, about this. Pastor Wright tells how, um, in his book, and I don't mind stopping us a minute or two, uh, he says, only once in my life do I claim to have seen a ghost. I was conducting divine service in a country parish in the Church of England, which was in the wintertime on a weekday, and out of the way place that didn't have services often. And the weekday afternoon and the congregation was only 20 or so people. And except for the old man that was the section of the church of the building, they were all in it. And at a certain point in the service, he um, was reading the Ten Commandments as they do in the Church of England service. And while he was doing this, he saw a man open a door at the back of the church with a brown overcoat and hat, hat off with his overcoat crossed the rear of the church and sat down in the, one of the rear seats on the other side. That's it. And then uh, after the Ten Commandments, he had a prayer, and when he opened his eyes at the end of the prayer, the man wasn't there. And at the close of the service, he asked the section, what happened to that man that came in while I was reading the Ten Commandments and uh, went and sat down on that side over there? Nobody came in here, sir. Nobody came in after the service started. Nobody here but these women, well, I saw him distinctly. I could describe him. Came in by that door and walked across and sat down on the other side. 
We couldn't come in by that door, sir. That door's locked, and we never opened that door except for funerals. <laughs> and uh, so Stafford Wright, a very, uh, not credulous at all, very hard-headed about this kind of thing. Not inclined to believe things without sifting them pretty hard. But um, he said, what do you make of this? And I am inclined to think that this was not really a ghost. You can call it a hallucination if you want to, but that this was a phantasm of a living person, that there was somebody in that community who had very much wanted to attend that service and for some reason had been unable to do so, and that his mind produced this uh, impression on my mind of seeing him come in there and sit down, and if I'd have had a camera there to take a picture, it would have been a blank film. wouldn't have shown a thing. Now, that's rather interesting, and of course, the ordinary psychologists will laugh at that. However, there are many more things like that. In this little book, Man in the Process of Time, I've got three of them, and they're all in out there. Some student the other right now. But, um, I commend this book to you. If you ever see a chance to get one secondhand, and they're interested at all in this kind of thing. It's, um, an interesting book, and it is written from the standpoint of Christian faith. Faith in the Bible is the word of God. Stafford Wright is a, is a real Bible-believing Christian. All right, now uh, leave the occult alone, Mr. Merrick, and also the horoscope. Uh, archaeological research has found out a lot of information on this kind of thing, a vast amount of material. Evidently, uh, Occult and demonic phenomena are almost as old as the world, and a great deal of evidence on this kind of thing has been turned up in the ancient Near East. Now, we went on from this to um, Manasseh. He is reported to have been imprisoned by the Assyrians and put in prison in Babylon. This has raised an objection on the part of some people that if it was the Assyrians that took him prisoner, they would have taken him to Assyria or to their capital in Nineveh. But the answer to that is, um, that's a rather silly objection, really. The answer is that at this time, Babylon was only a province of Assyria, and the city of Babylon was dependent on Assyria, and therefore they could have taken him there perfectly well. Now, the book in the temple found in the time of Josiah, the book of Deuteronomy, and we canvassed the possibilities about this, that um, it was lost, that it was hidden there on purpose, or that it was put there in the cornerstone at the time when the temple was built. You recall which of those three possibilities Dr. Under himself gives his vote to? Mr. Bates? Yeah. Now, this doesn't prove, Unger would admit this doesn't prove, it's a toss-up, but on the other hand, um, this practice is known. Cornerstones have been found with things in them from ancient buildings, before and after the time of Solomon. Therefore, this is at least a, maybe a probability, at least it's certainly a good possibility. Of course, if you hold the modern liberal theory about this, this book was a forgery and had been put there just recently written and was intended to be found and taken as genuine in order to fool the people into giving up worship on the high places and worshiping God only in Jerusalem. This is the modern theory about Deuteronomy. And that it wasn't written by Moses, but was ghost written some centuries later. Now, um, this is where we stopped, I think. The battle of Arcanus, 
605 BC on the upper Euphrates River changed the history of the world and the map of the world. There were three countries fighting in this battle, Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. And who won? Babylon won. Assyria had been already given one terrific punch in 612 when the capital was destroyed. Now they regrouped and rallied and fought again. And this time Egypt came to help them, but Egypt and Assyria together were unable to do it. And Babylon won, and neither Egypt nor Assyria has amounted to anything ever since. And so Babylon became the world champion and the supreme political power in the ancient world at that time, 605 BC, which they held until 539 when they internally knocked out by Cyrus the Persian. Now then, 515, it says in 2 Kings chapter 25 that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was taken as prisoner to Babylon, held in prison 37 years, and then paroled. How would you like to spend 37 years in prison in Babylon? You think this would be fun? Uh, Mr. Hess? Is it uh, how long you were in there after a while? I think it was uh, You think he was sort of Well, they paroled him. The Babylonian king died, and another one became king, and uh, he celebrated this by an amnesty and letting a certain number of people out. He wasn't pardoned, though. He wasn't allowed to go home to Jerusalem, but uh, let out of the jail, out of prison, and, and given better conditions and better food and so forth. But, um... Well, I could doubt you were tortured for 37 years. Oh, well, no, but uh, just to be in a... Now, look, at this... Uh, yeah, even to be the county jail would be uh, somewhat of a... Uh, it was a setback to you, know. <laughs> Well, there were two Jewish kings in prison and Babylon at the same time. One was Jehoiakim, and the other was Zedekiah, the last one. He was blinded and then put in prison and never paroled. And probably neither of those was ever told that the other one was there. I doubt if either one of them ever got one scrap of current events of what was going on in the world after the day that those doors closed on them. So it would be pretty awful. And Jehoiakim, this fellow, had reigned only three months when they took him off as a war criminal and put him in prison in Babylon. It's hard to figure what you could do in three months that would make this, but just, that, that was it. See, Josiah was the last good king. After him was Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. All of them died. And all of them involved in war with Babylon. Sir well, uh, maybe if you try a live and let live philosophy, you're legislative. Well, would one of you young gentlemen care to, um, care to try to swap that slide that I'd be? Oh. All right, that's that. Now, uh, Mrs. Johnson, can you relax now? Everybody needs to. All right. Now, the, the point that uh, all this makes you, this is, of course, only Bible history. All this is in the Bible, about 37 years, and then paroled out of the, out of the prison. But this has been confirmed uh, completely by um, discoveries at Babylon. 
And they found the list of the people that were on the roll to get the ration tickets, to get food. And the Yalkin of Yahud, which is the whole kin of Judah, the Babylonian spelling of it, Yalkin of Yahud, listed as a recipient of ration. Now, Jerusalem um, fell to the Babylonians after a very terrible three year siege. In 586 or 587 is uh, one year difference in the this date. And just before this, we have the latest letter. Yeah, Mr. Smith. Well, uh, it differs at most one year, but it could be less. <coughs> December 31st, 1971, and January 1st, 1972. Uh, in two different years, but uh, you know the family that has the quintuplets born on uh, 11.30 p.m. on uh, December 31st gets a terrific income tax break for, the, for that whole year. Whereas if they're born the next day, well, you don't get any breaks for 1971. So uh, this could be the, the, the winter that was uh, from one of those to the other. Like we said, this is the 1971-72 academic year. It could be like that, or it could be at the very most a whole year apart. Now, uh, the Lexi's letters, these are unique in several ways. In the first place, the we've been studying things that are written on clay and impressed in Samir form or Phoenician characters or carved in stone, maybe. But here's something on a different kind of material and with a different kind of red. Lake East, of course, a city um, about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. This was a fort. This was the west point of the Holy Land. Also the Leavenworth and the uh, Fort George C. Meade and so forth of the Holy Land. Now, um, what were the Lake East letters written on and what were they written with? Unlike anything we've had before in this course. Well, what do you write with, Mr. Harris? Typewriter, huh? Black print pen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's just this is the first example of anything we've had so far in this course, anything written in ink. And what were they written on, Mr. Bay? Yeah, broken pieces of pottery. These are technically called ostracots. And the singular, this is a deep near curl, the singular is ostracon. Pottery, a broken piece of pottery, is an ostracon. And the pearl, two or more, up the cup. And um, these uh, were not raised like our broken dishes. You take broken dishes and use them to write a letter on, and it won't work because it's sand. But unglazed, like a flower pot. And uh, broken, didn't cost anything. You just picked them up where there were some broken dishes. And uh, they would last uh, almost indefinitely. Of course, the writing in ink wouldn't. But written in ink with a, either a, Brush type of pen, like a very tiny paintbrush, or um, perhaps a wooden sort of a stylus, a soft kind of wood that would give a little broad kind of a mark. But written with uh, with paint on broken pottery, and 18 of these were discovered by a man named Starkey. I wish I had his picture here to show you. Very good-looking young man, just at the beginning of a very promising career and was killed by a bandit's bullet in Palestine. He thought he was a foreigner inside. 
and his life was lost in that way. After he had made this great discovery, truly, isn't there any fiction on his book, is it? No, well, I've seen some other books. A very um, promising man. And he discovered this. Now, I think the hundred is a picture, but we've got some better pictures of this. Huh?
Then Jeremiah the prophet spake all these words unto Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, against Lachish and against Ezekiel, for these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. This ties in exactly with the Lachish letters, which mentions both of these places as still held by the Jews, but in, in danger and threatened by the Babylonians. Lachish and Ezekiel. Now, uh, um, also, one of these letters speaks about the prophet. Was Jeremiah a popular prophet? He was. He was. He was not. Now, I'll tell you how to be popular as a prophet. You figure out what people want to hear, and then you tell it to them. Heard of a liberal preacher said to his congregation, dearly beloved brethren and sisters, which pains me somewhat, to feel under a degree of necessity of suggesting that some of you, unless you respect in measure, might just possibly go to hell to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, uh, you go to talking to people plainly about their sins and urge them to repent, and uh, you're going to have some enemies. Jesus did, and so did every other faithful servant of God. And uh, Jeremiah, he predicted that Babylon would win this war, and therefore he urged the people to get it over with and surrender to Babylon, and that this was the will of God. He was accused of being unpatriotic and a traitor and a defeatist and all these ugly names, but he did it as inspired by God to do it. And of course the outcome proved him right too late then though. But uh, it was the first reference outside of the Bible itself to a prophet in these lakey letters, the prophet. And um, this is the this is the Thomas document to know just in time. This is the first occurrence in non biblical texts of the common Hebrew word for prophet or Nabi. The prophet has been identified with the Uriah, son of Shemiah, to just the arm and so forth. And again with Jeremiah, the Oscar reflecting, so it is believed, the conflict between the pro-Babylonian and pro-Egyptian elements in Judah at the time of the conflict and the Babylonian invasion. Oscar number six has been thought to reflect this conflict. It's over badly preserved and much of it remains uncertain. As far as it can be translated, contents do not seem to be any more applicable to Jeremiah than to any political agitator of the time. So it isn't proved that this, this particular Ostracon uh, really refers to Jeremiah. It only speaks of the prophet. But it says that the prophet, uh, see if I can find the, the translation of that particular one here. Well, 
anyway, this prophet that is mentioned was said to be uh, giving the defeatist counsel, and the military commander objected to it. Suppose if one of our chaplains in Vietnam would uh, address the troops in his outfit and say, now, uh, all of you surrender to the Vietnamese as soon as you can, uh, probably the Pentagon would take a dim view of this. In fact, maybe they would. Now, uh, letter six. Surrender to the Chaldeans, no use to rely on Egypt. This is reference to Jeremiah, chapter 38, verse 4. Therefore the princess said to the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death, for thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in the city, and the hands of all the people, in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Any more questions on the Babylonian attack on Judah before we go on to the next one? All right. Um, from 525, and this is Unger from page 289 to 301. The Babylonians had a very effective but very cruel way of controlling conquered people. Can you imagine some foreign enemy uh, conquering the United States and I say they would take everybody from Pennsylvania and send them to Ecuador. And then take the people from Texas and send them to Alaska. And not let them take anything with them, what they could carry in a little pack over their shoulder. And move everybody around, have a general game of musical chairs on the international map. This got people uh, so upset, and they had to work so hard trying to get started in life again, and get their head of, just get a roof over their head and get some kind of living that they had no time or energy for politics for a long time and, there, and also it prevented any getting together they put people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds together they couldn't even understand each other's language and so uh, every area that they conquered became a linguistic and ethnological hard part this was very hard on the people, and uh, certainly it's a terrible thing to do to people, but on the other hand, it worked very well from their standpoint. The people in that kind of a situation aren't going to start a revolution. They just couldn't, and so it was quite effective that way. Now, the um, people of Judah, a large part of them were deported to Babylonia. It has been pointed out that probably very few of these people ever saw the city of Babylon. Daniel did, but most of them didn't, and were taken to distant places in the back country of Babylonia and never got to see the wonder city of the world. Uh, the book mentions three deportations of the Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. And if I read my Bible right, it speaks of four. Uh, the three... Uh, 605 B.C., that's the first one, right after the Battle of Carchemish, and Daniel and his Jewish friends were taken at that time. They were not really prisoners. They were sort of Rhodes Scholars, chosen for a scholarship program. But others were taken as captives. That's 605. And uh, the next one would be uh, 597. And uh, at this time... Jehoiakim was captured, but he disappeared, and Jehoiakim was put on the throne. And uh, that's the second time. 
And the third time would be 586 after the fall of the city. And the last king Zedekiah was taken at that time. Jeremiah was captured and then liberated. And one more, 581, which Unger doesn't mention. The Babylonians left a Jew named Gedaliah as governor under them. And some of the diehard uh, rightist Jews assassinated this fellow. This made the Babylonians understandably mad. And they came back for a return visit and uh, took uh, several hundred more, 745, 581 B.C. But the fellows that had done this deed weren't there. They had escaped to Egypt and uh, weren't there to face the music, and so they left somebody else to face the retribution for this deed. Now, um, uh, under this book raises the question, 530 is the question, the book page 291, how extensively the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem? Would this be as fully destroyed as if an atom bomb had hit the place? Well, of course it wouldn't, but they did a very fair job. And you know, the Edomites, descendants of Esau, ten of the Israelites, but also their enemies, they arrived on the scene and cheered as the Babylonian soldiers tore down and burned the temple of the Lord. And the Jews never forgot that, what the Edomites had done. They marched in one of the Psalms. They said, raise it, raise it. And applauded and cheered while the Babylonians were doing these things. Jeremiah, in his Lamentations, it's one of the most plaintive things in all world literature, describes the scene. Terrible scene. The finest young men, the flower and future of the nation, in piles of corpses at the head of every street, dead. And little kids, barely able to stand up under a load of firewood tied on their back, cutting wood for the Babylonians, and so on. Lamentations. And all this, of course, need not have been. It came because they would not obey and serve God. Now, um, the temple was absolutely destroyed. Yeah, Mrs. Wilson. Um, it's No. They did not. They destroyed the king's palace. They destroyed the temple of the Lord. They destroyed all public buildings, you know, like the post office, if they had one, anything like that. Uh, a large number of large houses that come to wealthy people, and they tore down the city wall. But they did not take all the people away, and they did not destroy everything in the city. Jerusalem was left as a pretty measly slum, though, by the time they got through. But uh, they, they wanted to knock it out as a power, not necessarily as a city. But the temple of the Lord, the king's palace, other public buildings, some large houses, and the city wall were systematically destroyed. That means you have. If there was a certain political power, well, nothing. Yeah, sure. Now, nothing in the Near East was purely secular. We think of the separation of church and state and, and distinguish between these, you see. But this was an unknown idea back in those times. And in pagan countries, religion was a function of the state, and in Israel, the state was a function of religion. But they were identified. Now, the, the function, civil and religious, the high priest wasn't the same as the king, of course. These, these were distinguishable, but uh, they were not separable. 
And therefore, if you conquer a country, you also conquer their God. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquers the king of Jerusalem, and the gods of Babylon conquer the gods of Judah. And they take their trophies and put them in the temples of the gods in, of Babylon. They didn't get any idols from Jerusalem, but what they did get, these gold and silver dishes and cups and other equipment from the temple, they took that all to Babylon. What did they do with it? They put it around in the temples of Ishtar and Marduk and Ningal and so forth, the Babylonian gods and goddesses. And it was from there that the last king, Belshazzar, hauled him out for his cocktail party. And this was double blasphemy. It was blasphemy against the Babylonian gods in whose temples these things were when he sent them down. You see, you don't, you don't take stuff out of the temple of the gods for a cocktail party. But he did. And then it was blasphemy against the Lord in whose temple these things really belonged and from which they'd originally been stolen. So he really... He really went to overboard in his uh, sort of um, showing his attitude toward religion, both true and false. Now, Hunger uh, says Lachish was destroyed twice. He did a, a double job on that place. And some other things here. Um, Ezekiel mentions the river Kebel. You see, Jeremiah was captured and they found out this was the prophet that had predicted that Babylon would win. Well, they immediately started to treat him better than And he was uh, honorably treated from that point on. He was released and told he could go to Babylon as their guest, not as a prisoner, or he could stay where he was as one place he pleased. And he elected to stay at Jerusalem, do what he could for the people that were left. Ezekiel, on the other hand, a priest and a prophet, a contemporary with Jeremiah, went to Babylon. And he did what he could for the people that were there. And they certainly needed a Billy Graham of some sort to deal with them. And Ezekiel tried to do it. He was the Billy Graham of the Jewish chapters in Babylonia. And in his book, he mentions the river Kibar, unknown to geography, at least until recently. But uh, Dr. Unger says, and I think this is certainly correct, that this was not what we call a river. It was a canal connecting a river and some other place. And uh, that's the Babylonian name was Kabar, K-A-B-A-R. Now, uh, the uh, book of Ezekiel has been held to be not genuine because of a number of things in it. And one is that uh, he dates things by the year of Jehoiakim's reign. Where was Jehoiakim all this time? He was in prison. But the prophet Ezekiel, blissfully ignoring this, dates things by his name at such, such and such a year of Jehoiakim as if he were still on the loose. But actually he was in prison. Now, um, this has been shown by archaeological discovery to be quite proper. Two places in Palestine, they found um, in 1928 to 30, pottery jar handles giving the year or the name Eliakim Steward of Joachim, Eliakim Steward of Jehoiakim, proving that he was still regarded as king even after he was in prison. Now can this be done? Boston had a mayor, Mayor Curley. He was in the federal pen in Atlanta on an income tax rep, and I guess he was guilty, but anyhow he continued to run the city of Boston by special delivery letters from his 
selling Atlanta Penitentiary. I'm sure a tremendous honor to the citizens of Boston and their mayor in the federal pen, but anyhow, he managed to do it. <laughs> well, Hoffman, what's Hoffman doing? Nothing. He was for a while. Yeah, I guess Hoffman is sort of thinking long thoughts, maybe. I, I think Hoffman is finished. Don't you think so? you think he'll ever get back in power in the future, Jimmy? Well, I don't think he will, and I think if the teamsters are smart, they won't let him. They don't need a dictator to run the teamsters' union. They got enough dictation without it. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, I mean, Harper is an unprincipled person. He will do almost anything to get to see what was he in prison for? Jury tampering. That's what that he was convicted of. That's a felony. Jury tampering. And uh, how can we, this is subversive of our whole system of justice. If somebody can tamper with juries and, and offer bribes to people on a jury, the courts might just as well close up and quit doing business in the country. So that's a terribly serious offense that he's in for. I'm afraid I have shed few tears over Jimmy Hoffman. <laughs> no, I know, sure. Sure. And he, he tried to. If he isn't running the Teamsters Union now, it's not because he wouldn't want to, it's because he can't. I'm sure. Well, evidently, the Jews, you see, they didn't recognize this. The Babylonians had taken their king and put him in prison, but this, this was not what ought to have been done from their standpoint. So they're keeping it up with the name and title of the king who is in prison, but they're counting their years from him as if he was still king on the throne, just the same, in, in uh, Judah and in Jerusalem. And then... Um, um, also, tablets, this is page 297 and 293, tablets of Nebuchadnezzar were discovered in Babylon, listing Jehoiakim as king of Judah, even after he was in prison. Another thing about Ezekiel that some of them object to is um, it refers to Persia as sending troops to the armies of Tyre and Gog. Now, Tyre I know, and Gog, I'm not sure where that was. But uh, Tyre and Gog, and this man, Tory, C.C. Tory says that Persia couldn't have done it at that period of history. But further discoveries have shown that Persia was a powerful kingdom long before it became the Medo-Persian Empire. Persia was already a formidable kingdom in its own right before it became the Medo-Persian Empire and, and the supreme power in the ancient Near East. So this again is quite out of court here. Now uh, Babylon, excavated by the Germans, 1899, Robert Kolderwey, A-O-L-D-E-W-E-Y. And uh, you read the book of Daniel in the Bible and you get the impression of the, the tremendous splendor and grandeur of that city the magnificence of it. And some have thought that this is romancing, that the Bible is all oh, making it out exaggerated, better than it really was. But this has been definitely confirmed. And it was Nebuchadnezzar who built Babylon up. He was not only a fighter of the Jews, but he was a great builder. And he left thousands of bricks that had his name on them. He didn't want anybody to forget who did this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had this brick made on these bricks. All right, now we'll meet uh, 
Wednesday and Friday, uh, if you will, and next Monday, and uh, if we get through with Sunday's book, we'll go back and review any part of it that you want, and then we'll have the test the week from Wednesday. Does anybody object to that? Okay.